0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. Here we go with episode 88, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. And as always, before we get to the episode, I want to thank all of the folks who support the show through Patreon or one-time donations, and you truly keep the show going, and I couldn't do it without you. Supporting the podcast is easy to do, and I will tell you more about that at the end of the episode couple more things. Uh, I want to say thanks to Kamil Schiponsky for sending me some comments regarding taxonomic nomenclature, uh, which is in reference to the last installment of Herb Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crohn just a few episodes back. Uh, thanks, Kamil. And we will incorporate your remarks in our next installment of Herb Science Sunday. Uh, some of you may recall that I had a chat with Kamil back in uh, episode 28 also, here's a shout-out to Joey Caviteo and Matt Agnoffo, who spent a recent Friday night taking their kiddos out to see salamanders and frogs. And, of course, there's lots of folks getting their kids outside and in contact with herps and other critters, but I'm just taking the opportunity to highlight a couple of Illinois boys doing good work, so keep it up. Our guest for this episode is Rachel Pickstein, and we discuss the issue of invasive tegu lizards in Florida and elsewhere. And we also talk about her research in this area and much, much more. I had attended the International Herpetological Symposium this past summer, uh, where Rachel gave a presentation on the subject, and I knew I wanted to get her on the show. So let's get to my interview with Rachel Pickstein. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, I have with me Rachel Pickstein. Welcome to the show, Rachel.
1: Hi there. Happy to be here.
0: Good to hear you this morning, and thanks for getting up so early. Uh, Now, Rachel has a um, master's of science degree from uh, the University of Nebraska at Kearney. And uh, you're here on the show today to uh, talk about, among other things, you're here to talk about some research you've done with tegus as they relate to uh, the invasive tegus in the United States and uh, the overall problem there. So uh, thanks for coming on the show to talk about this really important subject
1: yeah, absolutely. So happy to be here, Mike. And it's a personal passion project for nearly nine years. Uh, this year marks it, and uh, I'm very excited to tell more people about it because uh, we're we're doing a lot.
0: <laughs> Good. Um, and so, right now, you're you're based out of Phoenix. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yeah, so I live in uh, North Phoenix, and we've been here about seven years.
0: Okay. Are you getting ready for the hurricane?
1: uh unfortunately we have a very strong wind advisory today and uh rains which the desert needs but yeah we've already strapped down the outside per se
0: <laughs> okay yeah and i hope uh hope uh, a lot of the big cacti stay intact uh,
1: i really us. do you know they show them dropping all over the news it's mostly in the urbanized areas with you know the heat index and stuff uh, in the oh. desert they're adapting quite well but it's everything we're losing a lot of aloe and yeah, yeah it's we're gonna have to replant pretty big this winter so it's sad
0: Okay, well, hopefully we'll all get through this okay. Um, Okay, so let's, um, first of all, give us a little background on on yourself. I sort of introduced you with your credentials and stuff, but tell us a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm originally from Michigan. Uh like most people from the suburbs of Detroit, where like 75% of the state uh, resides, and I grew up in wetlands that I, you know, f- four years old wanted something that wasn't fuzzy, so my parents bought me a Michigan ribbon snake and uh I I go I've been hooked ever since. I loved my wetlands, my backyards, catching frogs and lizards and turtles and Keeping them and you know releasing them again and you know as I grew up and watched the road salts and the urbanization destroy that as well as the environmental education I had and you know uh, uh, you know grade school through college and going to Michigan State University for undergrad all that kind of branched up uh, my herpetology professor I'm still in touch with his name is. Professor Jim Harding, he's fabulous. He's a turtle guy, uh, wood turtle expert, and so I just became very passionate. And uh, after graduation, I moved to Florida. I was there for five years. I ended up doing my venomous training there uh, through a pet store and fr- and some friends. And uh, that's also how I came to own a tegu lizard and learn of their invasive issue and uh, you know what was going on. Uh, that was back in. I moved there in two thousand eight. Uh, they were actually reported invasive for the first time in 2002, uh, but they weren't confirmed breeding till 2012 until uh, right around when I was leaving. I left in 2013 back to Michigan for a few years. Um, it kind of stuck with me and it bothered me because I love the animals so much and I wanted to know more of their overall impact as well as what was happening because not much was being done about it. It wasn't really in the news yet. And as soon as I started moving back and they confirmed the breeding, uh, they also have this great trail cam shot of them looking right at the a big male, looking right at the trail cam with an alligator in its uh, mouth, uh, alligator egg in its mouth, excuse me, alligator egg, (laughs) Uh, but looking right at the camera. And uh, that's one of my favorite photos to use. That was 2013, right when I left. Uh, and so I was really interested to get more involved and at the time I was in my master's I was finishing it and I really wanted to do more research than I had the ability to And so just through my network in florida I had friends who worked at usgs and the university of florida with uh, fish and wildlife They did stuff with invasive plants with kudzu and Uh, I had gone to them with actually puerto rico and brazil through my master's degree And that's how I met these people and while living in florida and so I just kind of combined those connections and said, hey, I want to study invasive tegus. And it was actually on my way back from Brazil, I ended up canceling a plane ticket on a layover in Florida and staying there an extra week working with Fish and Wildlife. My friends volunteered with me, um, <clears throat> the same friends who taught me how to work with venomous snakes. Uh, and this is and that was 15 years ago, by the way. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, so it just rolled into this project. I moved to Phoenix and I took it with me to a university And uh, nine years later, we just finished the genetic study last year, and we ended up partnering with multiple universities, and so it kind of spiraled into this massive project. All,
0: all uh, all of this coming from a canceled plane ticket.
1: It's really, you know, I'm a very (laughs) spontaneous person, and I've always been that well spend money now, I could die tomorrow kind of mentality. So uh, this was a blood, you know, blood, sweat, tears, self funded for you know seven of the nine years. Grand Canyon University, thankfully funded the genetic study and all our genetic work. And then we'd be nowhere without Dr. Dean Williams of Texas Christian University because he offered his lab. He's a conservation geneticist. He works with horned lizards and birds, uh, as well as some invasive plants and some really cool stuff with wind turbines and bats. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. His name has come up on the show a few times.
1: Has You know, he's, and he's fabulous. He's just a very interesting person. He'll tell you he's a bird person, <laughs> but he's got pulled into horned lizards. And uh, so, you know, studying lizard evolution at Christian colleges, we were bound to cross paths.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, it's it's nice you gave a shout out to uh, Jim Hardy, who's a a wonderful uh, person, and he's—I uh, uh, like to get him on the show sometimes. You know, oh my right? goodness!
1: Please message him. He is on Facebook. If you aren't already adding yeah. him, and he's—he um, still, you know, sends those herp emails for years, and uh, you know, as to all of his students, and he's just one of the sweetest mans I've ever m- men I've ever met. And he did field trips, like we had lab and lecture for herpetology, and we would we would catch baby turtle nests, and we did all this hands-on stuff. Like, uh, you know, Michigan State did a really amazing actually tribute to him. And his years there that I couldn't make, unfortunately, across the country, but he just, he deserves it. So, yeah, bring him on, please. He's fabulous. I
0: I met him years ago and he was uh, a wonderful guy, just a really nice person. And uh, uh, yeah, I may may, uh, pursue that uh, later this year. So,
1: you know what? It's he was, I was going to add just one more thing. He is a breaking point for me because he really was one of those first people, similar to Steve Irwin, who actually showed me that like herpetology could be a career. Because up until that point, you know, like so many people had told me, this is a hobby, this is the, you know, so, uh, to me, it's, I think that's, what's really great about having people like them in the field and yourself is that you're able to set, you know, show people that this is something that can be beyond just the hobbyist.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you threw that in there. So, uh, let's, let's kind of pull up to, uh, the 10,000 foot level and, and talk about the tag you problem before we get into what, what you, what your research entailed. And, and, you had mentioned earlier too, you know that uh, this thing sort of was cooking under the surface. Not a lot of people were paying attention to it. I think that part of that might have been because ball or uh, Burmese pythons had all the attention, and so maybe the tegus weren't uh, being, you know, maybe we can only focus on one problem at a time. I'm not sure, but uh,
1: they have a hundred problems, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have more invasives, not even just non-natives, more invasives than not, than natives, more non-natives than natives. Florida is the second worst only to Hawaii because Hawaii is an island and its its native diversity is lower, I think, is the only reason. But I'd love to throw out two statistics. I think it's the same issue. The Burmese pythons go back nearly 70, 80 years, uh, like with the earliest imports. But there's documentation of them being invasive as early as the 1970s. Uh, And there wasn't active action on them, arguably, until about 20 years ago. The tegus, that's one of my favorite statistics as well, is that the population was announced, established in 2002, and then they were confirmed breeding in 2012. So you had a 10-year gap where nothing was done, and then Florida released something they actually called the Rapid Response Florida Tegu Management Plan. But that itself took nearly three to four years.
0: Rapid response, eh?
1: Yes, very rapid.
0: <laughs> Whoa. I, I mean, I understand the, you know, the wheels of bureaucracy are usually yes. square, uh, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> it even is. For, it, even it, for a state, you know.
1: And they don't have money. That's the problem I point out is they still to this day have $0 allocated per year for animal removal or any right. management of invasives, but they get $1.5 uh, a year for plant invasives. Isn't that And that, that, my, that number may have changed, but that was about from two or three years ago.
0: Wow. I mean, that sounds low even for plants, but the just the, the difference between the two, is it's kind of ridiculous.
1: It is. Yeah. Especially with what makes the news. And we joke because like the invasive curve that helps us predict invasive spread always has this big spot right in the middle where, you know, right when public awareness begins, that tends to be the point where we are unable to solve the invasive problem. And so when they tell everybody they can solve it, but it's all these python hunts all over the news and all the tegus in the news – that, that is the point of no return, you know, and them being exhaustive of any resources. And it's sad because the people at university of Florida and, you know, fish and wildlife, like there's some really good scientists there, you know, who are doing great things. Now I know we've had, and I talked about this when we met at IHS this summer, uh, about, you know, the, the horror of what we've seen happen, uh, with fish and wildlife. And, um, the Conservation Commission and the actions with, uh, you know, the illegal uh, snake killing that occurred and just, you know, that, that whole incident was just oh, yeah. a- appalling. Uh, but aside, those are officers. There's, like I would tell people, those are not the scientists. The scientists are poorly funded, very stressed, overwhelmed, hardworking people. And, and they're sure. wonderful and they work with universities. So we have to kind of separate that as well. But I also feel like, the awareness and the funds and the way things are applied are very old school invasive species is a very young study but it isn't evolving with the modernization of ecology in the way that a lot of us would like it to see
0: okay Th- those are good points to bring up because we uh, we want to not point fingers at people who are desperately trying to do something with yeah. nothing uh well, well let's when we say tag you problem uh, what what tagu are we talking about? Because there's more than one species of tagu in the world.
1: Absolutely. So there's around, depending on where we say start and stop on the subspecies, there's somewhere around maybe about a dozen species. They break down into three in the pet trade. So Tupinambus tagusin uh is what we call in the pet trade the colombian black and gold or colombian gold tegu Uh, and that one has never shown in the wild or in captivity to hybridize with the other ones Uh, and so that genus was separated Uh, i forget the first paper that suggested i think it was around 2008 2009 it wasn't really published among other people in the field and you know publicly as the genus change until uh 2012 i started seeing it in all the papers uh, and that is going from the split between Tupanambus and Salvatore, uh, because it used to be uh, Tupanambus marinae and tupinambus rufusens. And so now they are Salvatore marinae and Salvatore uh, rufusens. And, and which also, is the one that
0: causes the problem in Florida? Salvatore
1: marinae. So that's the Argentine black and white tegu. Um, and there have been about 20 of the tupinambus tagusin taken out of South Florida, uh, just in the South Florida homestead population. There have been no uh, none of the uh, and there have been the bulk of everything that we see in the three invasive populations in Florida, the uh, invasive ones that are being removed yearly now from Georgia, the few cases, like literally just a few individual animals in South Carolina, all of that was Salvatore uh, Marinet, which is the Argentine black and white tegu. Um, and we're not
0: talking hundreds.
1: Uh, no, no, we're talking way more than that. So about the estimation somewhere between... Uh, my estimation for, for homestead is over 300,000. It was estimated at 90 to 150,000 when I started on this project nine years ago. Uh, and they are not even removing uh, a fraction of what's breeding every year. They're removing about 1,000 a year. And that's not even what's breeding. It's probably 20% on the lowest, you know, guess of what's breeding. Uh, so it's really low ma- maintenance. They're removing uh, hatchlings, adults and sub-adults, all ages, all sexes, in mass quantities every year in Homestead that 1,000 or more. And then you have about, they've removed maybe about 25, 50 animals. Uh, that was what they put in a study that they put out. They might have removed more, but I guess it's, it's less than 100 they've ever pulled. And that's from the northern population, northeast Florida. They call that Pope County population. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, and then there's about, uh, on the West Coast, there's that, what, a, hun- a pocket of about 100 uh, 200 that were polled. So you have a population of a couple hundred, population of maybe 10,000, population of about 300,000. Georgia's removing about 20 a year. They probably have a couple hundred because they're getting only adults, subadults, no breeding. And then South Carolina, based what happened, they found only maybe two or three panicked, did a press release, and then they actually pushed legislation to ban tegus. Uh, North Carolina jumped in and banned tegus without any uh, release or at all, uh, which was the first preventative ban. And then, uh, you know, then Florida did its ban giving the breeders time to phase out. And all that's done is push all these breeders to Texas (laughs) who will never have the laws. So it's very frustrating that these people who have unsolvable problems or early problems are just, you know, and Georgia hasn't even made a law yet. Uh, they're either not making laws where they should, or making laws in ways that just forces the problem onto somebody else. It's, uh, it's really terrifying what's happened the last five years as this has changed. So it's Florida is, it's really up a tree with no uh, solution here.
0: And I think the other thing we need to frame here is you know we're not talking about a little skink. We're talking about uh, d- describe uh, this this lizard for the us. Average, first. I
1: pull out of the Everglades. <laughs> how
0: how so big have- is it, and what does it eat? And- yeah.
1: So I've been lucky enough to trap on more than a dozen occasions uh, with the two sources who really pull stuff out of the Everglades, and that is, uh, you know, the University of Florida and their trapping efforts as supported by uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. They're out of Davie, their little location there, and they're trapping in the homestead area. The ground zero is an avocado field, uh, and right down the street is the person, one man, who is doing... All the other half of that thousand, other 600. And his name is Rodney Irwin, and he owns a company called Tegu's Only, where he sells them back in the pet trade. And I i own a, a Tegu from him. He's a good friend. And uh, he also sells them overseas, like a lot of our breeders. And I, I'm not fully opposed to it because it's one solution to the problem selling them to areas they can't become invasive, like, for example, a lot of the Asian cities, like China and Japan, like them as apartment pets. So, what we're talking here in captivity. These guys are about four and a half, uh, four and a half, five feet long. Uh, you know, head is larger than an adult iguana and they weigh an average of, you know, a lot of them are obese in captivity, but still about eight to 12 pounds. Um, they can easily get over six feet. The ones I tend to pull out in the Everglades can get that big, but they often average around a sub adult size. I'd say a snout to vent length, somewhere around uh, eight to 10 inches uh, and then, uh, you know, an overall length of, you know, maybe about three feet, you know, a nice a nice, healthy sub-adult. But when you pull them out of the Everglades, they do not look unhealthy. They eat everything. They're truly omnivorous, adaptable. And um, three things that when we study invasive species, three things that make them incredibly good at what they do and their invasive overtake, uh, the tegu has all three, adaptive diet, adaptive habitat. And uh, high brain-to-body size ratio, so critical thinking-level intelligence. And the tegu, really, nobody can match that. They're also cold-tolerant. They can burrow and survive uh, below freezing temperatures, which is what they would do in South America, while Burmese pythons, interestingly enough, come out and bask when it's cold because that's what they do in Asia, and they die. So they actually cannot digest food or reproduce north of Orlando. So all that USGS prediction studies back in like 2010 that said they'd be, oh, all the way up to like the Carolinas within five to 10 years, that's not true because they did not use The uh, the actual biology of the animal in their prediction. They just did climate change modeling.
0: Yes, we all, or many of us, remember Remember that that one (laughs) bit of ridiculous. And that wait, wait, wait,
1: you study rocks. Why are you touching snakes? Right? No.
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. It it just can't model things without. uh, Well, like you say, without uh, considering the biology. Uh, Yeah. Such an outrage was. It's just made them the counter papers were
1: fabulous though, and that yeah. was right at the end of my graduate career, so that was a lot of fun to write about.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, as far as the the ones that are they're being pulled out of the uh, Everglades, and maybe I'm jumping ahead into some research areas, but uh, I'm curious about stomach contents—are they able to figure out what yes. these things are eating?
1: So I have not done that, but there have been a variety of studies that have done uh, gut necropsy. Uh, and I tend to do the heart. I take a heart clipping from the ones they'd already done that on. So I kind of followed them. They would unthaw, they'd do their stuff. And then, or I'd re, uh, rethought or a freeze and go in because I was taking genetic stuff. I was either taking a heart clipping from uh, dead ones or the blood from live, uh, from the caseguile mm-hmm. tail vein. Uh, but they've done gut necropsies and they found, they just eat a little, a little bit of everything, but they haven't done enough in my opinion. And we have confirmed they do eat invasive species. I forget the name of it, but there's a very beautiful, very large grasshopper that's invasive. I mean, it's like six by you know six inches long by four inches high. It's a big, fat, bright-colored grasshopper. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's invasive in uh, Florida. And uh, so they eat those. Uh, The biggest concern is their predation on eggs. Uh, You know, they have been confirmed eating cooter, uh, destroying cooter nests. Uh, and obviously we talked about the American alligator eggs and, you know, the Everglades is the only place that you have the American alligator and the American crocodile or any crocodile and alligator species breeding in the same area. And so there's a high concern with that with a very, you know, there's barely 5,000 or so, uh, you know, still a very big restriction on the American crocodile. They really aren't doing super great. And then you have over a million American alligators with a hunting permit, you know, uh, every year. So which is really well controlled, but like that's the big concern. You also have things like spoonbill, uh, sea turtles. Uh, they don't really come into sea turtle habitat, but I mean, as they spread, who knows? They're extremely adaptable, and they are really good at digging up nests. But they tend to prefer the more uh, like in South America. They actually they one of the primary primary sources of food is caimans, uh, caiman eggs. So, and that's okay. been heavily documented in South America. So that, that's a big thing too, is in South America, they're also major fruit, they're frugivores. They're one of the biggest units of seed dispersal. So there's a big, under, you know, there's two sides of thought here. There's, oh, they're a problem. Get them out. Don't study them. Don't even worry about it. Just remove them. There's the other side of like, hold on. Are we really, you know, this is the new thought of, that I want to talk about with invasive species. We'll go into, but um, is that, should we judge them on not their, you know, not how long they've been there, but their overall ecological impact? You know, they're, especially with how much of a hot mess Florida is, anyways.
0: Right, and it and it is. I think uh, my very first show uh, I had uh, Mike uh, Rockford. Mike Rock, thank He's, you.
1: I was just I, thinking of it. He's I haven't fabulous. had enough coffee
0: this morning. My very first show I had Mike Rock, Rockford on, and uh, we talked about the Python problem. I think at that time, which is four years ago, mm-hmm. there were like there were more uh, invasive lizards than native lizards. There was yep. like Eight, close to 90 invasive herp species in, in the state and that's just herp species uh, so it's it's just not going to go away that we we will never return Florida to some sort of place it was uh, pre-disney uh, if you will uh, so it is a constantly evolving uh scene or stage if you will and and nobody really knows what's going to happen or what you know what things will be in 50 years down there if there's, you know, I don't know, maybe there won't be much left. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but a, a creature like the Python has changed the dynamics uh, of the Everglades, right? Because it's eliminated a lot of the meso mammals and things like that. And Absolutely. I'm sure the Tagu will have uh, uh, maybe perhaps an impact in a different area, but, but it's hard to figure out where that, where that goes, how things do, do things ever reach an equilibrium with these invasives?
1: I mean, I think so things will always reach towards that equilibrium as like a principle of like, you know, ecosystem complexity and stability. And there'll always be that balance. I mean, but it's it's if usually what we see is just the trend of what invasive comes in. Overall, biodiversity, you know, reduces. But with the take is it's interesting with Florida, like you said, with the situation it is. And then every. <laughs> I always like to throw this in because every time I get really into my tegus, I have a few friends who are quite snarky, and they'll send me that you know predicted map of the climate change and uh, you know in the sea level rise, and be like, "Well, your problem's about to be underwater soon, anyways." <laughs> so that is true. You know, it, it's like I think we need to look at the whole impact, and the idea is we are urbanizing so rapidly. The the plastic issue, you know, sea level rise, uh, carbonic acid, and ocean acidification. Like, there, you know, and the, the you know excuse me, the damn feral cats, like. I, the fact yeah. that we do nothing about it and they kill so many species, Australia is truly the golden knight leading that fight. And it's to me, it's just so frustrating. It's like if we're really trying to save an ecosystem. If we're really trying to save species complexity and biodiversity function. We are not doing it. We're not allocating the resources. We're not allocating the studies. Like We're not understanding what's going on. And like you said, as quick as this thing is changing, we don't know what it is. And so you're trying to... I'm forgetting the famous ecologist who said, uh, "If you try to remove, if you see one piece of an ecosystem as not having function or purpose, then you truly understand, you do not understand the complexity of the nature of what you're messing with to begin with, and you shouldn't be messing with it. You know, like if you're not a mechanic, don't just start pulling out parts of your engine and saying your car doesn't need this. So I think that's what we're doing in a lot of ways. It's almost like someone." went and did a modification to a car with all sorts of custom parts and then someone comes over and goes, Well, I want to put it back to the classic car it was, but doing so would destroy it. And you don't know enough about mechanics to even do what you're doing. So that'd be my analogy. It's it's frustrating because it's like we need to study it because just dismantling it at this point is not going to be the best solution. And it's really hard to say. And I don't see these animals and their reproduction rates, even though they're fast and the impact they're having, like It's just, it's really hard to argue that they're not the same as a feral cat and and the disease spread that is not happening from them like domestics are causing or even honeybees and what they're doing to our pollinators. Like nobody cares about this stuff and it's arguably so much worse than berms and tegus. I think it's just juicy media story. And when you get no money towards animals a year, they're using it to fund their invasive species. And then, but getting too much press is almost shifting away the problem uh, but you know, I, I mean, the, the animal rights groups have too much of a hold. Like they're trying to release orcas who've been in captivity for 30 years and one just died the last time they did it. And they're trying to do it again. Like it's, you know, so that's also a big issue I have is like, we, that's the crossover point is like with why we're not handling the cats. The, those, those rights groups have uh like PETA have too much of a stronghold in the finances and the, uh. Political powers. Wow. So it's very poly- – there's nothing more political than invasive species. <laughs> I would say that. Yeah,
0: And we we certainly have to think of cats as an invasive species. Yes. Uh, and uh, by the by the time this episode comes out, I will have released my episode in which we talk about uh, uh, native, but also uh, – I don't know what the word. You, you don't want to call them invasive. Invasive. But we
1: call them – it's like native spread. It's an invasion by native spreading.
0: Okay. The, yeah. uh, raccoons. Uh, out of control raccoon populations and we'll talk about that and efforts to keep the those populations under control because uh, uh the problem is is that kittens and raccoons there's a million videos about those things and they're cute and cuddly and everybody loves them and we can't possibly. Harm them? What you know? Uh, never, never mind that. Uh, in some cases, they're pushing other animals to the brink of extinction, uh-huh. uh, and so we don't really have our priorities set. We have um, we care more about uh, what appeals to our heart, and not to our head. Um, so, but anyway, anyway, um, so it's it's a problem with uh, in many places with many different organisms. But in in terms of the the, t- the take you as serious for the things you you. Uh, mentioned uh, the fact that uh, they ba- basically consume a, a lot of different animals. And I, I want to mention that uh, a couple years ago, I was in South Florida, just north of Key Largo, uh, right near the bridge <laughs> as you crossed to Key Largo and uh, mm-hmm. ran into a Tegu trapper down there. And it might have been your. your Was, your was it friend, Rodney? It was it probably Rodney Irwin. Rodney. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember his name now. Uh, we ran into Heavy him
1: accent, and- bald dude, tall
0: i think that might have been him yeah Yeah, but he had a a car full of traps and we talked to him about the uh, for uh, i don't know half an hour or so about what he was doing and how it was going and how many you know he said well i'm trapping thousands of these things and yep that's gotta be him (laughs) uh, yeah and uh at that that's when i mean i've heard about this problem but that's really when it it drove home for me Mm -hmm. the fact that you know this is only one guy and he's trapping thousands yeah. Uh, and like he said, he said, you know, well, I'm I'm just skimming off the top here. Yeah, Um uh, that's true. And the place where we met him, you know, uh, we were looking for some uh, Everglades racers for me to photograph in.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Um, which we found, but you know, you know, it, what he said is, I just don't see a lot of herbs here anymore in this area. The king snakes are all gone. The, you know, the various the other various herbs that you just don't occur much here anymore because so the tegus are just coming and eating them. Or eating their eggs, um, so uh, that that's when it really hit home for me that you know even before way before I met you, it's like oh this yeah. is this is really bad.
1: Yeah, and he's a very good uh, source as well as he's lived his whole life there in Homestead, and his family has lived there for something like eight generations. They're one of the original families of that small town. And so he grew up and saw the civil rights and all that stuff change. And he's told me some amazing stories of how the South Florida, how it changed. Because it changed much slower than the rest of our country. So he's got some incredible stories. But, um, I mean, definitely he would have seen it change, like I described, with my home in uh, Michigan. And just like in your own lifetime, when you can see it change, it's pretty re- remarkable. Because you always – it's like the data screaming at you. You don't even need to record it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so let's take us into – Ooh, I have thunder outside. Oh. <laughs> uh, what if that picks up on the microphone? Um, okay, let's uh, let's talk. Uh, take this over into uh, your research and what you've been doing with the tag use. So, tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, as I said at the start about nine years ago on that first trip to Florida. I sampled. Uh, you know, a variety, I think it was something about 20, 25 animals. Before I went down, I actually, my own personal reptile and exotic vet, I brought my own tegu to him and he taught me how to pull blood in my own animal. (laughs) And at the time I was dating a plastic surgeon and he literally gave me a big old bag of needles and a big old, and then I contacted a research lab and, uh, Asked and just asked for donations. They gave me these little blood vials that basically have a decoagulant in them for storing blood, and I got these donations. And I, you know, decided, uh, you know, to go. That was, you know, to go to Florida at the time. So I've been brainstorming this for like six months to a year because I had gone to, like I said, I'd gone that first trip to Puerto Rico, and then I went, uh, you know, uh, the next year to uh, to Brazil. And Brazil was when I delayed my plane ticket, so I had prepared that whole year, done the training, got the resources, and like a crazy person, just brought this stuff on a layover and showed up at Fish and Wildlife. And uh, I went trapping with them just that one, uh, you know, that one time. Um, and uh, I worked in their facility, and uh, you know, Babesley was able to do a few necropsies as well as pull blood on some live animals. And uh, I returned six months later, and then six months later again, and then every year uh, for about. I think it was about five years. There was a total of seven samplings and about 600 animals uh, that I pulled. I sampled over 800, but I pulled blood on about 600. And that is, uh, we did basically uh, snout to vent length. Uh, I photographed the four sides of the head, as well as the back and the belly and the cloacal region to do different scale counts, as well as to look at uh, color variations and banding di- uh, variations, or just looking at the general diversity phenotypically. And then we weighed them like in a luggage bag with a little luggage scale that was digital. Uh, I also, uh, you know, did, I mean, sex is pretty, you know, consistent. I did probing for secondary sex, but it it can be hard. They clamp down all that, but usually the buttons are a good indicator. We were looking at size, weight, scale count. And uh, phenoty- phenotypic variations of color, particularly because of the blue tegu gene that, you know, had this mystery of where it was imported illegally from Brazil at this one time. And, you know, this one population, we got a blue tegu who we actually went through Ron St. Pierre back in the day. He started uh, dot com. So all of our blue tegu's actually originate from one shipment of t- about, I think it was 10 or 12 animals. Uh, and so, and that was back, I believe, 2005 from the records I have on it. Um, so
0: there were wild blue tegu's.
1: Yes, they were Thank supposedly you. they were imported as Tupaenas tegusen from Colombia, and it turned out they were illegal. Like somehow traced back, they were illegally smuggled, and this is the story I've heard from three people you know, and confirmed who were at the site and received the shipment with Ron and all that. But, you know, it's still just hearsay, but they said it was one shipment of 10 to 12 animals that came in and it was confirmed that it was like illegally smuggled and it was like a a shipment that shouldn't have come in because they were all Salvatore Mariné when they came in, but they looked very different. Uh, So I was interested in understanding that blue tagu Gene we also have a really interesting phenotypic variation that is called, they call that Rodney Irwin coined fire belly, which is the bright red orange belly uh, over what you t- would typically be a white belly uh, on the Salvador Marinay. And that's seen in about 30% of the homestead population, but less than 5% of captives. But I do have it in both. And so I was interested in what that was and, uh, you know, immediately thought that it might be hybridized with Rufusens because when we see Rufusens hybrids in captivity, which have only been seen in captivity, again, not the Everglades, um, you know, they tend, they can have, they can look a hundred different ways, but some of them do have that red belly. So there were some things I was interested in. That's why I was taking so many of those photos. I was also using the color checker. Uh, a passport color checker because we can do a type of a uh, uh, processing called color overlap index which looks at color true values and frequency and uh i have worked on that actually with a, a guy named uh, dusty Rhodes. we've done uh, we're working on some studies with that that's kind of his thing and he's a great guy i'm sure you know him
0: <laughs> yeah he's been on the show
1: <laughs> yeah he actually entered oh I, I, I thought yeah. he did with his uh with the uh subox i'm sure right yeah no,
0: we talked about subox and horn lizards yeah
1: oh excellent yeah and actually he introduced me to uh Williams yeah so okay. I have him to yeah. thank for that but uh he's yeah. one shout of them in that for. yeah absolutely shout out to Dusty he's fabulous the Horn lizard great uh people but CUI is uh CUI color overlap index which is a uh you know, a free download and plug that I could be happy to share with people is uh, fabulous because it allows us to look at true color values and color frequencies. So you can actually assess like banding patterns because of the frequency. So I haven't gotten that analysis yet, but that's why I just did. I did a lot of photos of tegus. And, uh, you know, that was the goal. And then, of course, the last step was if they were, you know, deceased, we actually did not do weight because the variable of unthawing them was often too much of a problem. Oh. Uh, but we did go in and I did uh, open them up and take out the heart and then basically just clip, you know, about two milligrams of heart tissue from the bottom and that can be used for genetic analysis the same way. If they were alive, why is the on, why
0: is the oh, heart? Sorry uh useful and gen- is there a reason why the heart is so useful for it's this? just a
1: dense clusterization of cell tissue okay. uh, for blood tissue because uh you could technically like scrape out coagulated blood but that was what my veterinarian recommended to me because for genetic what's nice about reptiles is they have nucleated red blood cells unlike mammals like us where our red blood cells are just carrying oxygen nutrients waste and CO2 back and forth uh you know tegus actually every red blood cell has a nuclei so it has DNA uh and so just taking a chunk of the heart tissue you're gonna have blood and you know and heart and cardiac tissue that's very uh, you know oxygen rich uh, you know and, and really in general when you have dark tissue like for example like the difference between like light meat and dark meat on a turkey that's actually the hemoglobin that is what is increasing the carrying of oxygen is actually what makes the meat dark I so see. when you have that dark yes yeah. so but my veterinarian did recommend that because although I have a good background in anatomy I this was all new to me uh, the live animals we actually would put them on their back. That allowed us to get better photos. And when you put a tegu on their back, very similar to uh, like bunny rabbits, if you tilt their head back, their brain rolls to the back. You have to keep the head very still and flexed back. Uh, it's just completely still. If they tilt it slightly right or left, they can get they can flip over. So you get them that position and they actually go into like a coma state where they like you can let your hands off of them. And they're completely still if you do it right, which is kind of fun. It's a cool parlor trick. Uh, but we keep that state very short because it's, it can be stressful to them because of the weight of their body on their back. Right. So basically in that position, we do quick photos. Uh, we do a sex confirmation. And then basically you take three fingers, place them just south of the cloaca, and that's to make sure you don't hit the hemipenes. And then we go in with uh, you know just a standard needle. It's a very thin needle. It's uh, the type that they use for babies, like human babies is what it was given to me. Uh, so the diameter is nice and small and I just kind of hold back on the syringe to great pressure and I go in and it sounds kind of brutal, but you actually go in until you hit the spine of the tail and that's your guide. And then you slowly come back The seagull tail vein is a very big, but very slow blood pressure vein down the entire tail. So when you hit that, you pull out. And so I just kind of hold it there. And then when blood jumps in the syringe, it jumps in. And I can usually get it done in under 20 seconds. It's very quick. Oh, wow. And then, you know, it comes in. It's about same thing, 2 ml, just like the 2 milligram if it was heart. And then I just place my finger to stop the bleeding, flip the animal over. And they're like, what happened? And they're they're fine. We use a little hydrogen peroxide to sterilize prior. And. They're great, so it's it's quite easy. And like I've done about six (laughs) hundred, so it gets quicker. What's fun is that they fight you, or that's hot out. They have a higher blood pressure. It shoots in the needle if they're cold, or you're waking them up. It's like that's when you're like really can't get the blood. So uh, I've learned a lot of little tricks, but um, that's basically the uh, procedure there. And then what we're doing in the uh, lab, we just started the genetic analysis last May, and it finished just in time for me at IHS this summer and last week of July. And, um, we are looking at both Tupanamas, uh, sorry, Salvatore marinet and Salvatore Ruvisens uh, in comparison, uh, there's a full genome sequence in Salvatore Marinet that came out in 2018. And that's beautiful because I was going to do that, but now it's a free roadmap. You know, I would have had to pay yeah. two grand for that free roadmap to do all the questions we want and then uh rufusens is so close related we can jump in and look at just the comparable different genes uh and so we're really interested in that because of hybridization that's been seen in south america naturally and we want to see if that's in the invasive population and how that's happening in captivity so like I said, there's no reds that are invasive. So we're taking, I have a whole bunch of captives uh, that are uh, pure red, as well as a whole variety of you know hybridization between the red and the black and white, uh, marinade and rufusons, uh 25%, 75, 50, all that that they do in captivity, calling them purple tegus, which they don't look purple, but they look a hundred different ways. Um, and so looking at that variety, and then they also come from different sources. They usually come from either Paraguay or Argentina, and they can look red, like more bright fire truck red, or more of like a dark burgundy, or more of a blood red if they're from like the Chaco region. So uh, that's kind of interesting. So we're looking at all that. but We ran samples on 134. So I was very excited that by sample size, as well as the extensiveness of the mitochondrial and genome sequencing we're doing, we get to declare that we have done the biggest genetic study on these two species. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Because uh, like I said, nine years of blood, sweat and tears. And then... Um, Just you know, we tried to publish without the uh, the DNA actually, and just had some issues. People were like, "Scale counts aren't enough; morphology is enough." You're mentioning the blood. Why don't you run it? And I'm like, "Well, the money." (laughs) So that's where GCU really came in, and and Dean, and just helped us finish this. And uh, we're seeing some amazing stuff. So right now, it's two papers: the original paper with that just compared the invasive and the captive bred population. Uh, It's the invasive homestead population of Florida. Uh, trapped by those two, you know, uh, uh, you know, people, as I mentioned, Rodney and then all of U of F uh, Fish and Wildlife's volunteer uh, student group. And uh, that combined with uh, in captivity, I'm very proud of my sample because I was able to get so many people to work with me. Um, I've purchased them from four of the biggest importers in Florida, uh, exotic jungle, Thai park, all those guys, uh, you know, and, and Thai park doesn't even breed or sell tegus anymore. Now these iguana land. he did a really ethical thing. He chose to phase them out and go. And he, instead of, you know, and he switched from a breeder to a uh, educational facility. That was the smartest move I've ever seen. And I love wow. that. So he's yeah. no longer breeding, but I got some of his samples. Uh, a lot of the importers down there, uh, breeders from all over the country, uh, uh, Hector's habitat, uh, you know, underground reptiles, Jesse's jungle. And so my collective represents as well as some breeders from, uh, uh, South America and in uh, the Netherlands. So I, my sample of captive bred represents everything that is like, I either bought it from you or I bought it from someone that bought it from you or your animal was half bred with theirs. I've got something from every Tegu source in captivity uh, which is nice because actually 10 years ago, there weren't that many sources. So I started with the originals and I branched out to everybody who bought from them and it's really all inclusive. So I have everything in the pet trade versus a extremely robust sample from the Everglades, uh, the homestead population.
0: Well, let's talk about why this is important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, it, it recently I, I, heard something about, uh, uh, they found, uh, some Indian python, genes in the in the Burmese python wow. gene collective in Florida. Uh, so is, is it must be important to understand the vectors for these invasive tegus that are in the wild? You want to mm-hmm. know where they might come from in the future? Because we've obviously they're 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 popping up like wildfires in different states and different areas. Is that part of why it's important to understand the genetics of the, the what the uh, the captive bred people and the importers have?
1: There's there's two things. So one, I was very interested to see tracing back the invasive population to its origin really interests me. And that's something I'd like to do eventually. All the South American stuff has been done. Another name drop. Uh, Dr. Lee Fitzgerald out a Texas A&M fabulous. He's the one who set the limits on the importation out of South America. Uh, About 1 million uh, Salvatore marinade and 1.5 million Tupanambas tegusin become cowboy boots every year out of Texas. So they're actually, I should mention this, they're the world's most commercially exploited reptile, Salvatore marinade, uh, on top of the, the conservation issue. The genetic issue is actually much bigger than that. It's important to understand the diversity of the genes and where they came from. But the main reason that I'm really interested in both the hybridization potential as well as the genetic diversity is, one, the stuff in captivity so far is incredibly genetically robust, much more so than that of the homestead population, which is showing to be a founder population, which is what previous studies have already uh, suggested. And so we're able to definitely understand that. But the scary part is that as more animals get loose from the captive bred, because there are going to be continual individual release from hurricanes, from pet owners, from pet traders, whatever. These incredibly genetically diverse animals in captivity are going to breed and get back in the invasive. And that's actually what I found so far in running our samples of invasives, of the invasives and the captives. They were incredibly genetically distinct, so much so that you can absolutely tell Whether they were from the Everglades populations release or whether they're from this captive group. And so there were multiple ones in captivity that showed invasive genes, which is what we knew because we know people are buying them, you know, invasive and selling them back into captivity. And then in the cross hand, we're seeing ones that are invasive with full captive genes, meaning that they're new releases with new genetic diversity. The reason this and potential hybridization prior with rufusins, which we know has been documented in South America, if that population came over with those genes as well, this would be the fourth category. Remember, I gave those first three, the three things of a, of a formidable invasive, and that was the intelligence, the brain to body ratio, the adaptability of the habitat, the adaptability of the diet. The fourth thing would be the genetics, and this is a term called phenotypic plasticity. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned with the Indian Pythons, they're actually considered a new, uh, new subspecies. They're so hybridized that they are not the, the, the Indian Berm Python, like what's in the Everglades is truly a unique population on its way to being a unique subspecies. They're so hybridized, they're not related to like wild berms or Indian pythons. We're also seeing some of that uh, you know, crossover with, for example, the Nile crocodile genes that are appearing uh, you know, with some of the American crocodile and stuff that have been seen in the Everglades. Oh, and the problem with all three examples is their phenotypic plasticity. And what this means is they are not a hybrid. <laughs> they're closely related enough. And this gets into that little wishy-washy subspecies talk because everybody uh-huh. loves that, right? Yeah. Um, the idea is that they're so closely related. Breeding is increasing their genetic diversity, making them more adaptable and more formidable, not reducing their... Their uh, their ability, and we know this for a couple of reasons. One, it doesn't affect their fecundity. So their hatch size is not being affected when they're being hybridized in captivity. Uh, The ones in the wild, we're not seeing a reduction in, you know, hatch size. So we know these genes are not reducing like the berms or the tegus, uh, you know, fecundity. And if they're hybridizing, we should see an immediate reduction, usually related to reproduction. Like you would see, for example, when coyotes and wolves hybridize, when polar bears and grizzlies hybridize. They do have an overall reduction in, you know, the animal's like physiological health. Genetic yeah. health and reproductive health, and we're seeing none of that. So that's a really, really, really big issue. So, and studying the genetics in a vavas of species, it's opening a whole new door to understanding how the potential they can actually cause.
0: Okay, well, thanks for that explanation. That makes more more yeah. sense to me. And I, and then I, I thought it also brought up another parallel with the uh, the invasive uh chameleons in Florida which oh, yes. you know there's plenty of people that go out and uh, fill a bag with chameleons and then uh, pour them back into the pet trade so you have this sort of uh, uh cyclical thing happening uh, with those as well i guess that's so uh, it's it's not uh it's not a unique thing the human monkey reaching in there and and and, and you know stirring yeah. things up it, it happens with other things besides the tegus. It's just that the tegus, uh, there's just a lot more at stake than there yeah. might be with a, you know, a, a Parsons chameleon.
1: Yes. And that's another argument, too, is like we have in like supposedly invasive macaques, uh, you know, a whole monkey population by the Fort Lauderdale Airport. You, like you mentioned, there's actually multiple species of chameleon and tarantula, but they're so well contained and they're not having any measurable damage that we've noted. So then I also argue, are they invasive? is it not just a well managed non native population and can it not potentially as florida loses so much of its native diversity could these not non natives not replace what's missing and create a new ecosystem of complexity so like people always ask me like when do we get involved like you see these documentaries of sea turtles just getting eaten by everything you know like when do you get involved why would they just videotape that and not help and i go well hold on it's a very clear line Did we cause the damage or not? Like you said, the the monkey. (laughs) Did the monkey get involved to ruin things? And I'd say, we've destroyed the Everglades. I think we need to be studying it and watching it recover and managing it and looking at it from a deep ecological perspective and that it needs to kind of be reborn like a phoenix in its own way. And like, again, if sea levels rise, it might just change everything again. There's so many problems we face, just like the Great Lakes where I'm from. We have, you know, invasive species. We have nuclear power plants on Lake Michigan causing issues. We have, you know, uh, you know, burying bay- the uranium and stuff and all that. What we have throughout Michigan uh, with the byproducts of that, and you know, the road salts, the defo- you know, but habitat yes. loss is still the biggest cause of any biodiversity loss globally. Not invasive species. It's still habitat loss. So
0: it's still like- the bulldozer
1: yeah, we're still going to keep bulldozing and letting the feral cats run rampant. And then we're going to be, but then our solution is going to people's houses and killing their snakes. Like to me, yeah. that's like, it's just, I, I don't understand. I mean, I guess I'll just give my, I'm a big Trekkie. So I'll just throw out, you know, Spock, you know, it is curious how often you humans achieve that, which you do not want. And, th- and that's this whole yes. story. That's this whole story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and so you, you've, you've published, uh, you've recently published these uh, genetic results. Uh, what oh, did Oh, sorry, you, what, so not
1: published yet, but it Not but published work. yet? <laughs> we just okay. finished the statistical analysis and like we're done, uh, but we are, we're applying uh, for the, both papers will be applied in the next 60 days. So really, oh, okay. really close. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, congratulations on Thank that. You. Um, that's a, a lot of, I know this has been a, a big uh, chunk of your life uh, going, poured into this. And I appreciate that, it, but uh, I don't want to call that a coming to an end. But where do you where do you shift after that? So what I, happens I, after that?
1: I will say that I kind of made a decision when I started this project that these would be my species: uh, Salvatore Marine, and really the Salvatore genus, you know, which includes three. Uh, actually, there's Salvatore Duceni, which is not in the in the pet trade, known as the gold, the. Uh, uh, the uh, gold—it's te- called gold tegu. But uh-huh. if you go into Google, they look a hundred different ways. They can even look like a red tegu. Uh, getting a hold of those is one of my dreams to really understand the genetics of what they are, who they are, and how—you know—are these different locales or subspecies, or are they truly different animals? Um, I own tegus as pets. I—I I mean, I was fascinated from the beginning by the fact that they are so intelligent. They're so diverse and they're so little known about them. They're either used like a lab rat in medical studies of morphology and locomotion, or they're just removed in the Everglades. And I was like, You know, these animals are incredible. They just always fascinate me. So, like at our home right now, we actually have four. (laughs) And, you know, I've had tegu's for nearly 10, 10, 12 years as pets. And I think they're just amazing animals. So, I love to branch out more with them. I mean, I do a lot of other things with burrowing owls. I do some stuff with colubrids and, uh, you know, other things as well. I've got about five active projects that have nothing to do with tegu's. So, I keep myself quite distracted. But to me, You know, they are just a passion project because they're so interesting. So I'd love to do some stuff with like, uh, you know, some uh, cognitive stuff on their intelligence, their social behavior, uh, really studying them more as an animal, not just, you know, this invasive side. Um, I'd like to partner more on understanding the importation routes and actually working with more of the conservation side in South America. Um, And one of the things that's a really big passion project, unfortunately, uh, it was a Ph.D. proposal that was supported but just never took off with the University of Cambridge. and that was, uh, to look at, uh, and that was a, my favorite name drop. I got to work with the, uh, the co discover of Titanoboa, Dr. Jason had, and he's one of oh, the sweetest guys in the world. That. Yeah, I was there and he, I, he's from, he went to university of Michigan. I went to Michigan state. We grew up 15 minutes away from each other, but we met in Cambridge. I was there on my six week internship and I did, I published on some palm oil stuff with, uh, uh, palm oil related to, uh, uh, understory management of plants and the uh, and stick insects. My mentor was a stick insect guy who had a stick insect named after him, Dr. Edgar Turner. And Jason was there six months, <laughs> so I ended up partnering with him before I left with a PhD proposal. And sadly, they didn't pick it up and wanted it, you know. But but we had fun making it, and we were looking to actually compare tegus on. Paul, so, uh, palm oil is converting between rubber, old rubber plantations into palm oil, uh, rather than cutting down uh, secondary forest. And yes. there are a lot of tegus and monitors on those plantations, and they've surveyed frogs and they've done very little on snakes. You know, it's all the big ones people love frogs, dragonflies, a little bit on spiders, ants, but nobody's really looked at lizards or snakes. And so, I wanted to take the model that we did with the BEFTA project, which stands for uh, Biodiversity and Ecosystem. Uh, function in tropical agriculture it's a big university of cambridge project that's half funded by the palm oil uh, uh, industry and actually half funded by uh, the cambridge conservation group and so it's kind of cool that the industry is actually funding research to make palm oil more sustainable and effective it's a very sustainable product with a 25 year turnover which is like crazy for a crop but is that they're cutting down new forests to do it so you have these like great rubber plantations that are becoming palm oil you have montegu's in south america you have monitors in uh, Indonesia, and it's the same system. So, something that would be my absolute dream would be what I wanted to do in that PhD proposal under Jason. Which would be to study because uh, he's actually a paleontological ecologist. He studies extinction through uh, you know inherited traits from the fossil record, and he's an extinct snake guy. But he loved the idea because it's about comparing their evolution and their ecosystem structure and how they function on these two modified habitats across the world. But because the companies were the same and the uh, like, it was done in the same way: same habitat, same companies, same machines, same management. So right. it's, it's really a cool parallel. So that would be like my ultimate dream would be go back to that, you know, dead end proposal. Uh, But I think like, I guess becoming like the Tegu lady or the Tegu expert has been like a long time coming, I guess. Um, And my personal mentor, Walter Mashaka Jr., who's one of my co-authors. Yes. uh, Hilariously, this is how I realized I was really meant to be the Tegu lady, uh, is that he contacted me (laughs) and asked about Tegu advice. We met on a blog called Tegu Talk. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow. And I had no idea who he was and he is a fabulous man and a fabulous mentor, but he was the first person to tell me you've worked more with them than anybody I know. And I go, well, you know, a little imposter syndrome. So, uh, but I've come to, you know, I just, I love them and I really want to invest in them being as a species, Salvatore Marinet and its relatives, something that I really become a specialist in more so, and that I can branch off and help others study this species uh, and I'm very excited. Biology of Lizards in Shirakawa Mountains is next year. I can't wait for that. We're going to be presenting there. And the logo is a tegu lizard. So oh, it'll wow. be year of the tegu.
0: <laughs> next year.
1: Yeah, or at least a Tiad. I think it's supposed to be a whiptail or a tegu. Uh, but it's a okay. year of the Teid, I believe. That will be uh, July 2024. Biology of Lizards. Yeah.
0: Oh, cool. Cool. Man, I'd like to go to that. that I hope you do.
1: It's, uh, I'm sure you've been. It's the most... I mean, there's more lizards there than anywhere else in the United, in, in, what United States or North America, I believe. It's uh, and birds. Lie. Oh, it's yeah. Jerkout Mountains is a, yeah. an absolute gem.
0: One of my favorite places. Yeah. Like many, so many people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's that's cool, and I hope maybe the the the, the stalled project with Cambridge somehow uh, gets um, revived in some way. Uh, it's cool that you worked with the um, uh, the uh, the Titanoboa guy. Um, I so I wish this, I got to work uh,
1: on Titanoboa. Everybody assumes yeah. that I got to do that. I go, no, I just, I just drool over the documentary and I showed my I go, I know him. No. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wouldn't it be cool to go see that, uh, the dig site and all that. Where they, oh
1: my gosh. They do in That'd yeah. be amazing. I did nerd out. Uh, and because I, I do show Titanoboa and I wrote a whole paleo, paleo, uh, um, paleo biology unit for the charter school I teach at. And I show Titanoboa and do all that. And I, I was very excited. I bought you know, nerded out and, uh, bought myself a 3d replica of the Titanoboa vertebrae Ah. from a fossil replica company. And it's amazing. They actually take over 2000 photos of like 3d scanning to actually do it. And and they hand make it. And so that that's one of my babies. So that's my little, uh, you know, reminder that, you know, the PhD didn't happen, but I'll take this.
0: Nice. It was a great experience. The Titanobo gets all the press because of the name and the size. I mean, uh, arguably it's going to be the star, but there's some other cool stuff that has, that have come out of that, that, uh, Oh, the giant crocs.
1: Giant crocs, giant turtles. Turtles.
0: A oh. uh, uh, turtle, you know, the size of my car. I mean, come yes. on, what's what's well, not sexy about that? Well, they also found it that? was the
1: first uh, emergent discovery of like more than a, like a dozen plant species, like the bean, the avocado, chocolate, yes. uh, banana. Like it was the first occurrence of all those. And what I thought was so interesting it was it was that whole time period, you know, ten, you know, million years post uh, the dinosaur extinction, where we had no information in South America. So like just to have yes. a whole piece of history opened up. And to learn so much and then to be able to, you know, compare that. I love paleobiology because to compare, you know, Titanoboa to the green anaconda of today and, you know, be able to go back and forth with that, it's just, it's really, it's so fascinating, I think.
0: Yeah. 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 And, you know, there, there's always been a big snake. Yes. You know, yeah. And yeah. I want
1: to know, I'd love to know the ancestor of Tegus and Monders. They diverged when the continent split about 45 million years ago, but they had a common ancestor. And it would be really cool yeah. to uncover more on that. And paleontology yeah. is like forensics, it's a side nerd love of mine, but, uh, I've sadly never gotten time to commit beyond the books.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a good pastime when you're, you're not doing research just to read about other people's research.
1: Yes. But I mean, Arizona is such a rich fossil area. I've really missed out. We've only recently, um, gone fossil hunting this year. I actually went to the, uh, pace and paleo site and dug up some shells and stuff. And then, uh, just visited the famous, uh, uh, Tuba, Arizona, has the famous dinosaur tracks, and there's eggshells and huge coprolites. You know the feces piles, and it's like almost an entire wetland preserved. And th- that was very special. I got to do that this past year. So it's
0: amazing. Uh, I, maybe you had this experience there, but I I went to a dinosaur trackway in Colorado at a place Ooh. called Picketwire Canyon, and you have to hike many miles down into this canyon, and and it's along the Picketwire, or the, if you will, the Purgatoire River. Is, yeah. Uh, the actual name but pe- local people call it picket wire because they can't say purgatoire. Uh, but anyway, uh, and stand there and there's, um, there's sauropod tracks from the uh, mm-hmm. uh, brontosaurus type uh, animals. Mm-hmm. And there's uh theropod tracks uh, from something like an allosaur. We're not quite sure what yeah. exactly wow. it was, but you're, I'm just sitting there I'm so, in, in the middle of a trackway. Um, you know, yeah. there's not a human around for 10 miles and, it just kind of throws you in a different state of mind It does uh, because you can't help trying to visualize what happened here or what what the scene was you can
1: see them almost you can almost like see the scene like being recreated like a picture from a book you know like right
0: it's, it, it's uh it does funny things to your brain if it does you,
1: will. It, you know to me it was just and it was like when we went there i'm sure it was same for you there's like nothing for miles it's just like Stark, what I mean, you say the desert people say it has no life in it, but our sonoran desert here is so lush. But going there, it was just hardened dirt for miles and miles. You couldn't, there was barely any like small scrubby bushes, and there was just the Native American guides, there was three of them, and they just walked us out, and that was all there was there. It was four of us, you know, what five of us in the middle of nothing but for miles, and it was just that wow. so quiet, so like eerie. But and then we had um it was amazing we had the ones you're talking about as well sauropods and some of the larger's but um they had the big three-toed sauropods which were really cool and then they had um velociraptor ones that were a little smaller and then they had actually uh, pterosaurs Uh, and like baby pterosaurs where they had like been nesting and the eggs and yeah they actually had the neck, and I was very upset because someone had actually stolen an egg I couldn't believe that someone would do that just I know they had a whole nest out of five eggs and one had been perfectly chiseled out and she was like yeah that happened last year like I led the tour and they came back and apparently they go for like 15 or 20 grand and I'm just like because it's sad it's Native American land they live at the base of the mountain they drive out every day they've got no security they're very impoverished so like it, you know it was really nice to get their view and to support them but that broke my heart because they've these beautiful preserved eggs and they just pour water over it so you can see it Um and then really just amazing huge Cobra light piles that I mean, they look like they were just pooped out yesterday, you know, like, they're so poop shaped. And they remind me of the Jurassic Park scene with the tra- Triceratops in the arm, you know, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a, amazing. Yeah. But I, I I like how you describe that, that, that it's just absolutely like takes you away. Like, I mean, honestly, I found it more shocking than the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. Like it just it took my breath away. It was just so amazing to be like wow this was here like it's it's different than seeing him as a skeleton in the museum you know it's just it's really impactful like they lived here they may they they had this moment
0: they left their mark on the earth yeah yeah it
1: almost like a reflection on ourself like and your own impact on the earth you know like i don't know i kind of felt that too like wow they lasted but like what are we what are humans you know what yeah, last will we give
0: yeah we're still in the blip stage yeah. <laughs> of existence really compared yeah. to that so yeah Wow. That's cool. Uh, what, what else are you interested in there? What else can you uh, would you like to discuss uh, in terms of things, your your projects or uh, future projects? or?
1: Yeah. I would say another passion project of mine, is uh, which was really exciting just a couple weeks ago, uh, I helped start with our only DVM, uh, the Veterinary Club at Grand Canyon University uh, about five or six years ago. And the goal of that was to get the veterinary major. We have a pre-med major. That's one of the foundations of the school is our pre-med, pre-PTA, pre-PA, uh, programs. And so that actually just opened uh, about a week ago. It was actually while we were at a- IHS a week or two ago. Uh, it launched the uh, pre uh, biology with a pre veterinary um, emphasis. And so managing that club, getting kids to vet school, um, everybody who goes to be in vet, in my experience, is cat and dog. So my background being with reptile exotics and equine as well, I always tell people I'm not a vet, but I can tell if you if it needs to see a vet or not. And so that was a passion project, like helping these young veterinarians be mentored. Uh, they literally come over to my house. I teach them how to b- pull blood on snakes and lizards and, and you know, just, uh, you know, handling the animals, you know, because I think it's really important. A lot of them do not get any of that advice outside. And I can name gosh, at least a dozen times in my life that someone's come to me because they have a sick snake or an injured animal. That's a, you know, exotic animal. And they, they don't know what to do. They take it to a cat or dog vet and they get bad advice. I hate to say it. They get bad advice. And I've always said that cat and dog vets will kill your exotics. I hate to go there, but they do. They will treat them. They'll take their money and they do not know what they're doing. So a passion project of mine is, you know, not only, you know, making people love reptiles. That's obviously why we're all here. Right. Um, educating about, you know, I've done, um, You know, snake safety, excuse me, from like your backyard to the site, you know, hiking trail and bio blitzes, things like that for libraries. Um, I'm one of the directors of the science program for Phoenix Fan Fusion here, our Comic-Con, and we do the educational hands-on science room and the science panels. And so I'm a public educator. Yeah. So like I do that as like a public educator. So like really public outreach and helping people find, you know, what they want to do in life and reach that right goal. Like, I don't, I love that. Like there's a slogan. It's like, you can't compete with me because I want you to win too. (laughs) And that's how I live. Like I I don't name drop because I know people I name drop because I love saying this person's amazing. This person's awesome. I love helping my students. And like, that's what I live for. So I love my research, but I always say that education and teaching will make more of a difference than my research ever will. I truly believe that. And so I'm really big on like, we do trivia nights as fundraisers about conservation themed and Arizona wildlife questions. And so that's how we fundraise and also get the word out. Same thing with Comic-Con. And so I just love that. And the Veterinary Club to me, like seeing it finally get that major this year was such a nice, like that to me is the ending point of that because I've recently in the spring stepped back from Grand Canyon University as a faculty member after seven years because I've been doing it part-time. I also teach for another college and a charter school. So I do too much. Uh, so I recently started my nonprofit Pickstein lab and then stepped back. So I'm a research partner of GCU. I'll maintain all the research with the students I've done and all that, but I'm just not teaching the courses anymore. Mm. Um, but, uh, I think it was a good move. I wanted to be more independent. And I think through my public outreach, through my mentoring that I can help a lot more people. And really, you know, that's my goal, help people. And when you help people in turn, they want to help you. And my message is, help snakes, help your wildlife, be better about using water and electricity and plastic. And, you know, so like at the core, I'm environmental and it's all about education and helping others. But like by helping others, I can, you know, somewhat selfishly get them to listen to my message. And I have a lot, like I said, a lot to say clearly about saving snakes and saving the environment and misunderstood animals from my pit bull dog to and the keep tegus. your
0: keep your cats indoors
1: keep your cats indoors i'm looking for that no kitty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i think that's an important message and i really wish and i truly believe that every person needs needs to be an advocate and whether you're a hobbyist or you just got your first ball python or you are a scientist you need to be out there educating and sharing the good information because there's so much bad stuff out there. We have to put out the good word and reptiles need a bigger voice. But I think the positive side I'll end on here is that I've never seen a bigger voice for reptiles than today that as I've seen the destruction rise, so has the advocacy and moving to a red state from a blue state Uh, and one that was rattlesnake heavy from one where we only had Easter Massasaugas. You're lucky to see one in your lifetime if you look for it every day, they're so rare. And they just got protections, thankfully. Um, I've never seen a place so snake pro everybody in Arizona, I mean, not everybody, but most people love snakes and the snake love, I thought it'd be like Texas and it's the opposite. It is very pro snake. And obviously we're not, everybody's not convinced, but it's more often than not. And to me, it was a great starting point to be able to you know, work here. And um, I'm actually going to be the keynote of snake days uh, next July with, um, Jeff Adams run that. It's a really, really great symposium slash bio blitz in Texas. And he is one of the most amazing keys to really being a branch between stopping the rattlesnake roundups because he's a good old Texas boy and you know he's he's got those connections with those people where they're more willing to listen to him than to me you know being this yes. little girl from Michigan coming and saying don't kill snakes uh, I love snakes I have Now uh, so.
0: hold on there little lady
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs>
0: you don't know what you're talking about <laughs>
1: exactly so to me it's all about you know rising waters raise all ships collaboration is key and so I'm very excited I've, I did um, a zoom lecture for them a few years ago I was supposed to go this year and my schedule just got too crazy busy with things and stuff um with symposiums backing up and all that and our genetic study being done i had to go to texas twice but um so with that um I'm, I'm really excited for that because you know that's the future is it's all about educating and it might take 20 years to stop sweetwater texas's rattlesnake roundup but you know between the stuff that jeff's doing with snake days and emily taylor we were a part my students were part of her yes uh, writing. Right yeah, we wrote 50 letters for her this year, my charter school students, and they were so proud about doing that. I already have 100 students who signed up this year just from the word of mouth to do it this year. So, like, you know, nice. it's small steps. It makes a difference, but it's yeah. only if we work together. Right.
0: You may we not know to, this, but I'm the president of the Emily Taylor Fan Club.
1: <laughs> Are you? That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if there was one, I'd be the president. I love it. Uh, yeah, she does I met her at,
1: she was the keynote when Dusty and I presented at Biology of Pit Vipers 3 in the Churicow Mountains. And uh-huh. uh, I got to meet her there. And yeah, she is just, she's amazing. And then yeah. Project Rattle Cam. And it's really fun stuff to watch. And they have yeah. so much more time to put that stuff in the internet than I do. But I love what they do. And again, yeah. collaboration, it's it's, we're all making a difference, but those small yeah. steps. We have to not get frustrated with the small steps.
0: I, li- I like, of course, I like the w- research and 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 things like that. But the mentoring she does and the support yeah. she gives to other people doing research is uh, absolutely, also worth, oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, and I, and I, I, speaking of that, I remember I messaged her right after that conference, and I was like, "Hey, I'm looking at a telemetry and snake She's like, "Let's set up a Zoom," and we were talking two days later. So she's fabulous. Like, I mean, that's yeah. me. Is that's how we get things done? Is you know, people who truly care about the research they're doing and the animals and the wildlife habitats we're trying to save, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's different. Like we truly care and put our passion first, but it's different than what we talked about earlier with like, for example, PETA and the animal rights people. Um, I call it small brain, big heart syndrome. You know, we're, you know, we can't be like that. We're, we're using practicality and common sense, but you know, we're not getting frustrated with our small steps. And if we just work together, you know, we'll, we'll make those strides. It already is making a difference.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. all the uh, all the unnamed and unforgotten animals need some love, too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many out there that are, you know, it's uh, what is it? It's uh, oh, gosh, quote, quote, Bob Diem from his conservation conference in Africa. Sure. It's on my my de- my my door at work. I wrote that it's, uh, you know, in the end, we will only conserve what we love. We will only love what we understand and we only understand what we are taught and so again that comes back to my philosophy is that we need to be doing education uh and you know social media can be good but like i mean just like with your podcast and what we do on facebook and social media i mean i think it's fabulous what you do mike and that's why i was so excited to be a part of this is that that's exactly what you're doing too is you're connecting herpers and you know people in the environmental field who have a lot to say about different animals and different situations and i think it's, it's really interesting just to get the conversation going and it just, it spreads just like anything else that's viral, these memes and stuff, you know, that the knowledge can spread the same way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wish I could, I wish you could bottle your energy and, <laughs> and sell uh, it. enthusiasm and, and just send me some.
1: It's uh, called pure ADHD, not, <laughs> not, not misdiagnosed. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, you know, you're, you're using your powers for good. So I appreciate it. Thank that. you.
1: Thank yeah. you. I try.
0: Yeah. It's been great to talk to you. Absolutely. Uh, and it was great to talk to you earlier at the, at the IHS meeting. Yeah. So uh, I look forward to seeing what else you come yes. up with. Uh, in you in as future.
1: well. I loved your talk. Are you going to be at any conferences coming up?
0: Um, not that I know of, uh, but I am going to try to, I am trying to arrange, uh, next year I want to go to the world Congress of herpetology in Borneo. Oh, Ooh, so I'm going to try to make that happen, but
1: uh, well, shoot. We'll be close enough. we will be, you know, it's within Indonesia. Maybe we can, uh, sample some monitors, you know, <laughs>
0: Hey. Well, yeah. Right? Go back to that there's camera study. A, there's always a side project, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, the Borneo earless monitor. I know that would be ooh. Oh, you can yeah, find that.
0: Yeah, Lanthanotes. Uh yes. yeah. Ooh. That's big on my list. And is it? Uh,
1: I imagine. I imagine. So so I'm,
0: yeah. I'm hoping to take uh, an extra week and do some sightseeing, if you will. Um uh, That's fabulous. Also called herping. Uh, <laughs> around Borneo. Depending
1: we'll on where you are and what you're allowed to say. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well we'll see. But uh yeah, but uh yeah, I'm always interested in things. Oh, I'm interested in like the biology of the pit vipers and uh, 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 like you say, the uh, the uh, uh, lizard conference in uh, next year is interesting to me too. But sometimes I just get – I'm involved with uh, uh, herp travel trips and, and yeah. it's like, oh, this is the same time. I can't yeah. be in two places at one time. Like I, all the
1: time. That's why I miss snake days. It's like, but there's three things that week.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. It
1: gets crazy, but it's. You know, I try to plan them out. It's like my comic conventions. I try to plan them out a little – Farther ahead of time, and like those, some of those are booked like six months ahead. But uh, India, what are you most excited to see next week in India?
0: Uh, well, of course, I'm always looking for the king cobra,
1: mm-hmm, so I'm mm-hmm. like o
0: for five now on that.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, statistically, um, you're more likely to see it this time, right? You know. <laughs> well,
0: I, I like, I try to think that way, that's so that uh, yeah, uh, that's a big one for me. And uh, there's, uh, I'm going to the the Western Ghats, so there's a lot of frog species I'm interested in there as well. So. And uh, any cobra will do, and saw so scaled vipers and things like that. So, yeah, um, that's I'm awesome. Just, uh, yeah, just going as a uh, uh, on somebody else's tour as a spectator or as a participant, I guess. Uh, so it's it's good just to be one of the gang, and we'll see what happens. So
1: that's awesome. No, that's really really wonderful. You know, I I, I herp as everywhere I go is herping. we were at a wedding. Uh, funny story here in Mexico, and it was one of those I've never been to one of those like those resorts, you know, and it's like a fake. I couldn't believe it. You chop out a chunk of rainforest, you put in some big rocks by the water, and then you throw in this resort and you mow the lawn three times a day and they call it nature. (laughs) And they just, it's crazy. Like They make their people who work there They drop them at the bottom of the driveway that's, like, two miles long and make them walk up and down every day. Like, I couldn't believe the way they treated the staff. Yeah. The way they treated the staff. And, of course, the worst thing, they have all this education about, oh, sea turtles. We do all this for sea turtles. And it was, like, you know, like, all this spiel, smoke and mirrors, this little, like, area where they have, like, dug up and moved some nests. And then every night on the beach, they had weddings. And the baby sea turtles were getting pulled towards the lights. We were rescuing sea turtle babies every night, finding dead ones every night. Three major species. And... And then right before we left, my husband and I are walking down the uh, the pathway at like 8 a.m. And they're out like, you know, gardening with their machetes up in the palm trees. Beautiful, perfect little parrot snake. Just, well, an adult, but just gorgeous. Dead, two chops to the neck right in the middle of the the sidewalk. And so I had had enough. So here's another thing you can do with education. I took pictures of this. Of course, I felt bad because my friend's wedding. I waited until afterwards and then, you know, did it on Yelp. I went and they had five locations. I Yelp reviewed with the photos of the sea turtle baby dead and the chopped up snake and a whole paragraph just saying you could hire a biologist, blah, blah, blah. Twenty. That was in November, less than a year ago. 20,000 views just on the picture of the dead snake. Oh, and I, so like, I'm like, it's amazing what you can do by just complaining. Because I complained to the people who work there and I'm like, you know, like, th- you can hire biologists, like, this is what you're doing in nature is just terrifying. Like, they let the monies and, you know, get the Cody's get in the trash, and that's no problem because they're a mammal. But you just chop every snake you see. Like, it's just unbelievable. So, I mean, I think, like, you know, that's just, I don't know. So maybe sure. on your trip, you can, uh, you know, hopefully you have better experiences than that. But that was my last yeah. international herping trip.
0: Well, uh, you know, we, we we run across those things here, uh, in various right? places. But uh, I, I'd like to think that it's better than it used to be. Yeah. Um uh, people aren't so quite so tone deaf and uh, yeah. i I don't trust anybody who wouldn't be outraged at a a squash baby sea turtle oh yeah um, absolutely
1: so, absolutely yeah, so
0: I think you that was an effective use of of a review of a of uh you yeah. know an application to but
1: it. I will say I did catch some beautiful spiny iguanas uh, oh, yeah. around the pool and it was lovely because you can tell they'd never been caught before. <laughs> 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 so they let you just walk up in a bit they're like whoa who's this and the, the look of this guy he was mowing the grass and he stops and i'm holding this big male my arms are all bleeding I'm in my bathing suit just like "Well, no big deal and he's looking at me and he goes what and i'm like yeah you want to touch it he goes never have i seen 10 years working here any guy i go you seen a guy or a girl do it he goes no nobody nobody does this So that was my highlight. And then everybody, all the tourists came up and pet the iguana and of course got a lesson on the iguana and then I gently let it go. And then of course I had to catch a female to compare and, and but but they learned a little bit more natural fear of humans, which is probably good for them. And, uh, yeah. And then everybody got an iguana lesson. So like, I'm just a big advocate of wherever you go, you know, so
0: you're going to, you're going to roll out that lesson, whether they like it or not, it's (laughs) happening, right?
1: It's yeah. You you better run if you don't want it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we go, you did mention something about Comic-Con. What are you doing at Comic-Con?
1: So really exciting. So um, basically, this started nearly six years ago. I was invited by someone at GCU. There is a program called STEAM. The woman who runs it is named Rebecca with her assistant, Brian. And uh, it's okay, STEAM stands for STEM with art as well added in it. And the goal was to bring, yeah, oh, it's fabulous. The goal was to bring more STEM uh, and art-based and education for teacher-based programs. And so, if you go to a comic con, you typically have these things called panels. And most comic cons, they're free, and it's usually three or four people sitting on a stage at a table. You have a PowerPoint screen. They talk on a topic, and then they take audience questions. And you know, if it's a celebrity panel like we had Shatner this year, you're getting you know five thousand people. Our panels, you know, uh, it's about costumes. You might get twenty people. Our panels get pretty consistently about 50 to 100 people upwards of 300 our rooms only hold about 300 and we have over uh, over about 60 depending on the year we get between about 60 to 120 panels and just some of the names that I've been on were like, uh, real bioregeneration, the science of Deadpool. And we talked about, you know, uh, you know, ah. nukes regrowth and axolotls and stick insects. And okay. I was, so you, re-
0: you related to this, you relate yeah. the, the, these things to the nerd niche.
1: Yeah. So we're, we're, yeah. we're like science okay. behind. So there was science of frozen. And I talked about how the, the anti-freeze of frog species and crickets and the real frozen science of Mr. Freeze nice. and, um, yeah, like I've done um, what Megalodon. I did, then, we, then I was able to – so that was the first couple of years. And then my dinosaur panel was so big. I partnered with the uh, our local museum, and our dinosaur panel was so popular. Rebecca asked me to start writing panels. So we got the history of snakes, uh, which mm-hmm. we had over 100 people. I was so proud. We did a crocodile panel this year. I did one on cetaceans this year. um, And so uh, the year before the pandemic, things kept getting bigger and bigger. And the guys who run this, they own a company called Square Egg. It's these three dudes. Uh, And they were like, look, the the science stuff is kicking off. We want a hands-on room. We're going to give you a Discovery Lab. So we planned it in 2019. The Comic-Con shut down 2020, Uh, 2021. It happened last year. It was so successful last year. They doubled our room size this year, put our panels in the same room, and gave us the hallway of STEM with the Discovery Lab. So I was in charge of Discovery Lab as one of our directors. and I'm still a panelist for different things. Uh, the Crocs in the cetacean panel this year, but I was really busy. My, my nonprofit has a table. Um, I partnered with, I don't know if you know Caitlin Rose Garcia. She's one of my best friends out here in Arizona. I know the name. She's the conservation director, uh, education director for the Phoenix Herpetological Sanctuary. And so I invited them. We also had Wild at Heart Raptor Rescue, another of my partners. So we got a five-foot alligator. We've got uh, the Lowell observatory with an anti-gravity machine. We've got ASU. We've got owls. We've got skulls and hands-on stuff. And um, we've got all sorts nice. of hands-on labs with fingerprinting and sinker float station for kids and so, like this year, it was just a massive success. They, I mean, it was even bigger and better. So next year, it'll be bigger and better, and it's it's so much fun, you know, to bring science to everybody in a nerd environment. And yeah, this I is Phoenix Comic Con, right? Yeah, so it's called okay, it's called Phoenix Fan Fusion because of the legalities using the word Comic Con. Unfortunately, San Diego see everybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's yeah. been around, I believe, nearly don't quote me, but about fifteen years. Um, okay. And so we've been in it for the last six or seven, and uh, it's just so much fun. Uh, we're big. My husband does Legos and video games, and uh, you know I'm really big into cosplay. So it's it's just a lot oh, cool. of fun to do all that. And uh, yeah. like yeah, and then behind the scenes, this year I was running a couple cosplay competitions. I was setting up Shatner's set with the sound guys. So like, wait I a minute, let me ask everything. you something. Yeah.
0: Did you get to meet the Shat?
1: I didn't, but I sat oh. in his chair before he did. I
0: don't know.
1: <laughs> They were like, that's his set, that's his chair. I'm like, butt in the seat. My butt was there first. Um but I did see his panel. And what's great about Phoenix Fan Fusion is we're considered the most fan-based convention in the country. And so we have like everything except food and stuff you buy and your admittance tickets is free. Uh, And so all the panels are free. All the hands-on stuff is free. And there's like a whole floor of Lego. There's a whole floor of Dungeons and Dragons. They'll help you build a character. They'll help you like, there's all sorts of play with, you know, I mean, there's a whole board game rental floor. You rent board games like a library. Uh, It's just, it's fabulous. And there's something for everybody. There's, you know, thousands of panels on every topic. And I tell people, like, literally something from everybody from Disney to hentai and everything in between. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The 18 plus places are clearly marked. It is mostly family friendly, and our stuff is family friendly. But I just let people know it's not just nerds, but like, it's every type of nerd. So like, how can you okay. not be a nerd? There's something you, there for you. You. Have,
0: to, you have to include it. You just put them over there. Yeah, but if the... you come down, yeah. I'm
1: the director. Free tickets, Mike. Okay? Serious. Oh, wow. Every year, wow. free tickets, you, you'd you be an honored yeah. guest. Well, and I'm be... always looking for new people. So if you know anybody in the Phoenix area who's in conservation, education, STEM, anything, uh, we're always looking for more guests uh, for our room. And it's, I mean, it's a free advertising table for three days and it's, we get 5,000 foot traffic. You should so. talk to
0: Brian and Liz.
1: Oh, I offered it Brian to him. Brian Hughes, he told me Liz Hughes. Brian's also, I didn't name drop Brian yet. Brian is one of my best buddies in Arizona as well, my yeah. best friends. And I love him and his wife. Uh, we were They're just texting babies. the other day. He was sending me a video uh, of a wild beaded lizard in Guatemala where he is right now. And I yep. was like, uh, you suck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I did invite him two years in a row. And he is a very busy guy. And he, he almost went this year. And he said he's definitely trying to come next year. But, um, yeah, know he's a great guy. And he was, like, first on my list. That's the problem is um, there's a lot of people who really want to come, and they're just really busy. So, like, our guests change right. each year, but we're always looking for new people. And then the room supposedly next year will be even bigger. So I got to keep finding more guests each year. But, yeah, no, Brian, get your butt on uh, Comic-Con, buddy, yeah. when you listen to this, okay? Well, get Liz in there,
0: too. She's a great resource, yes. too.
1: Oh, she is amazing. Yeah. Her and her archaeology stuff she is doing – uh, is fabulous. You sh- you need to have her on here talking about that. She is like full blown member of the paleontology, archaeology stuff out here, and they're doing amazing things. She would be yeah. an interesting guest. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: I I love her. She's a she's a wonderful person, and I I love her. You know her social media. She finds mm. this. Oh, absolutely. The pot shirt, she sees this. That's great. But I, I was on a clifftop in Baja, mm-hmm. Mexico with her and some other people.
1: No way. And we're
0: walking along looking for this specific rare lizard and we're walking along. And she just kind of stops and said, People sat right here and were napping flint at this spot. And then she shows me all the little flinch, all the little oh, shards yeah. and all the you know the, the pieces left oh, over. Oh my from, gosh. She's like, they sat here looking out over the ocean and they were they were oh, uh, working on stone tools. And I'm like, How did you I
1: mean,
0: her eye for that kind of thing was just Wow. It's just like the
1: dinosaur tracks. Like she just took you instantly back to that
0: time. Exactly. It's the same mind mind bend. I'll use a clean word. Mind bend. Uh, It's the same kind of thing, you know? It's like, oh my gosh. And she just kind of put me in the place there. So, uh, th- Liz, thanks, awesome. thanks again for that. I really well, I'm jealous.
1: That. Liz, you owe me a hike. No, I know. She already offers. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when, I when love is, her leave-as-found com-
1: policy. She's so fabulous. Yeah, Preservation yeah, yeah. of what's stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. And uh, I love that. So, yes. uh, when is the Comic-Con?
1: Oh, so what our Comic-Con is nor so it was uh always memorial day weekend and last uh-huh. year it moved and then thankfully this year it's back so it will be this memorial day weekend which is what the uh last week of may i know early may right i gotta go hold may. on let- labor yeah. oh sorry what- sorry let me pull it up i'm you know what i always confuse memorial day and labor day um ah. which i'm sure i'm not the only one there right because one's coming up right uh so one's coming up and one is uh already passed uh may 24th to the 26th okay may 24th to 26th of 2024
0: all right okay well maybe I will see you there we'll see
1: yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay well uh thank you so much for coming on the show um I really enjoy talking to you and that's uh Good to, uh, I love your energy and that's, uh, thank you. And
1: thank a you. My thing. pleasure too. I was, I, I've been a fan for a lot for quite a while. So I really, uh, really appreciate the invite and finally getting to have this discussion. Cause it was, it was a lot of fun. We have so yeah, much. I, to talk. And, about.
0: and I like how these things work out. You just run into somebody and yeah. Oh, holy cow. This, this, this talk Rachel's doing, this is awesome. I want to hear her. want to hear more about it. So uh, I like how this stuff on uh, works 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 its way into into the show. So
1: I really appreciate it. It's funny; our our world is so small. The people we share It's quite yeah. funny. I'm yeah, you're I dropping all these names. Yeah, it's and I'm like, oh yeah. I'm I'm yeah. yeah, I know it just became like a whole name jottery here. But I, I yeah. love it because I said I love I love promoting people who are great. But it's it's, it's so cool to be able to share similar people, and it kind of reinforces that. We're already doing what we said we're doing, which is collaborating and working on the same causes. So I, I yeah. keep it up, Mike. I think what you do is fabulous, and I really appreciate being invited.
0: Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And uh, I wish you well with all your future endeavors, and uh, thank I hope to too. see safe you again Safe travel sometime. to
1: India. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back on and, and safe travel to India. I'm going to be following on Facebook. I want pictures.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Jealousy pictures. <laughs> FOMO. FOMO. FOMO pictures. <laughs> FOMO, FOMO. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Rachel. Thank you. hey there, it's me again. You know, this business with invasive tegus is is tragic and sad and it's it's pretty complex. Uh, And just another component of the ecological disaster that is Florida. I want to thank Rachel Pickstein for coming on the show to discuss it and for bringing all the energy. Uh, Rachel, I look forward to our next conversation wherever that may be and uh, I wish you all the best as you move forward with your PhD program. And uh, of course now I want to go to the Phoenix Comic Con and see you and the other folks who are bringing two worlds together. I hope you enjoyed the show, folks, and as always, thanks for listening. That's it for episode 88. Thanks again to Rachel Pickstein for coming on the show, and I certainly look forward to our next conversation. Uh, you may notice that I have the original outro music playing, and that's for John Edward, who heard it being used elsewhere. And I can assure you all, I paid for my royalty-free copy. Once again, I want to say thanks to all of the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling along. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so muchpingle and so muchpingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so and you can also join the So much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. Oh I say it every time, but I do like hearing from folks. Like to hear your thoughts and opinions, your guest suggestions, whatever you got. Uh, you can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com, and so muchpingle is all one word. Also, please note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon now under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.